Over the last uh, couple of weeks, as Graham just said, we have been looking at two individual conversion stories in Acts. When a person, conversion, of course, is when a person has come to believe in Jesus. At least that's the Christian version of conversion. So we're not talking about houses getting converted or cars being converted or some other sort of conversion. Um, And this week we're looking at the third of these individual conversions that Luke records, the conversion of Saul. And the first two individuals that Luke mentions uh, have not actually gone on to be a major influence on Christianity. Uh, Simon the sorcerer did give his name to a uh, specific sin. Um, And the Ethiopian treasurer, whose name isn't even given, was probably very influential to Christianity in Ethiopia, but we don't know for sure. But Saul is another matter entirely. He's on another level. Much of the New Testament is formed from his letters, and most of the book of Acts after this is concerned with Paul's missionary work. And of course, Paul is the Greek name that Saul uses. And Paul is, in fact, one of the most influential people in history. History, full stop. History of the world. He's even influenced China. Paul's conversion is so important to the church that it's recorded four times in the New Testament. Here, in chapter 9, Again in Acts 22, when Paul explains it to the Jewish authorities when he's arrested in the temple. And once more in Acts 26, he explains it to the Roman governor, Felix. Uh, And finally in Galatians 1, is probably his first letter, he recounts it to the church in Galatia. So we have four versions of of this account. So it's a very important account. So let's look at this first uh, purely historical account of Saul's conversion, which we find in Acts chapter 9. Reading from the NLT. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Notice this is the first use of that term, the way, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And just as an aside, if you read the other accounts, they say that the men saw the light, um, but they didn't see anyone. So the different accounts, like the Gospels, fill out this story. So if you're wondering, if you go and read all of these accounts, 
expect there to be little differences because this is an actual historical event and that's how these things get recorded. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptised. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Now that is a testimony, right? That's, what, that's the sort of testimony we all want to share. Yeah, I was going around killing Christians and then <laughs> God just appeared to me on this road and I went blind and fasted for three days and then this guy came around that I'd seen in a vision and he laid his hands on me. But unfortunately... Well, fortunately, because remember what part of the vision of Ananias was, that God would show Saul how much he must suffer for his sake. So it's not really the sort of testimony that you want to have, unless you like suffering. Now, there's, there is a lot going on here in this chapter. Paul's face-to-face encounter with Christ equips him to be an apostle, commissioned to the Gentiles. For most of us, the Holy Spirit works in more subtle ways than a an actual physical face-to-face encounter with Jesus. But in the process of conversion, the Holy Spirit must be at work regardless. And that's what I want to focus on today, the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people and the way that the Holy Spirit, and this might be a little confusing because we're Trinitarian, so I'll be talking about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and they work together in, in complex ways. So let's get into it. In Acts, chapters 8 and 9, Luke has suddenly shifted focus from the growth of the church down to individual conversions. He records three of these individual conversions in a row and Paul's is the third one. 
Why do you think he does this? Anyone got any ideas? You probably don't unless you've been thinking about this like I obviously have or you hope I have. No ideas? <laughs> There's the, the, the story of Acts so far has been about the church, the big sort of picture of the church and the church spreading and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly there's these three individual conversions. Instead of saying, you know, 5,000 people were added that day or whatever, there's suddenly this individual person called Simon the Sorcerer, this Ethiopian treasurer, and this guy called Saul. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Luke's trying to explain. Luke's Luke's reading, writing an account of the church, right? So he's trying to explain what the church is and isn't, and 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 the church is made up of people who have personal individual relationships with Jesus and so he wants to show how you enter into that and how you don't enter into that. So um, all up through here we've seen uh, Luke talking about this idea of what is and isn't the church on a bigger scale although sometimes he uses individuals like Ananias and Sapphira, different Ananias Um, and, and but he He's, he's been working on a bigger scale and now he needs to talk about the personal level. Um, he actually... He, he does have individuals like Barnabas and his, uh, his amazing generosity. He gives us Stephen's amazing sermon which grounds the gospel firmly in Jewish history, Jewish salvation history, in fact. And he shows how, for Stephen... That was a life and death matter. Stephen wasn't just nervous preaching that sermon. He, he, he didn't kill it. He got killed. So that must have been quite a... Uh, he must have been really trusting the spirit that he was getting that sermon right. He wouldn't have been mucking around. So we've got that sermon preserved. And then Luke shows us vignettes of what it means to become follower of Christ through these three individual conversions and after this the salvation which we'll be talking about next week the salvation of a Gentile house and he does all of this while he's talking about the expansion of the church from Jerusalem to Judea Samaria and all the world Luke's actually a pretty amazing storyteller so he's he's doing several things at once Now let's have a look at these three individual conversions and see what the differences are because that'll help us understand what Luke's message is here. Simon the sorcerer saw the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, right? He saw the healing and the casting out of demons and he saw that this power was greater than the power that he had. And so he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and he followed Philip. But Simon soon revealed that his heart had not been transformed. Rather, it was bitter and enslaved by sin, as Peter said. And Peter recognised this from Simon's attempt to buy God's power for himself. 
Simon actually experienced the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. He saw it personally. He saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He had that sort of experience. But that wasn't enough to transform his heart. That, that green symbol, by the way, is, is healing. That's, that's a symbol for healing. <laughs> it's the symbol of the medical community. A symbol of a Greek god, actually, but whatever. Um, so let's move on to the Ethiopian treasurer. This man was actually already heavily invested in God's word. He, uh, he was, as Graham said last week, a seeker of God. When we meet him, he wasn't experiencing the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Rather, he was sitting in a chariot wrestling with the scriptures. And Philip helped him by explaining these scriptures to him, much as Stephen did in his sermon earlier in Acts. So Philip was probably taking notes when Stephen was giving that sermon. And the Ethiopian encountered Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah and that encounter was strengthened by Philip's testimony that, that we could say tore apart the curtain of confusion that was blocking the Ethiopian from an encounter with the, living, with the living Christ. And as a result of that encounter, his heart was transformed. He went on his way filled with the joy of salvation. And now, if we go back to Saul the Pharisee, like the Ethiopian, Saul was steeped in Scripture, right? He was a Pharisee. Paul himself uh, testifies to this in, in, uh, when he's talking to the Jews later. So his problem was not a lack of knowledge. Saul was present at Stephen's sermon so he'd actually heard the same sort of thing as, as what Philip had said to the, to the Ethiopian uh, treasurer. So he'd heard it all. He, he had all the knowledge he needed. And, and I don't think it was a lack of experience in the power of the Holy Spirit either. He'd, he'd undoubtedly been hounding these Christians and in doing so he would have seen uh, all of the miracles and the results of the miracles and he would have understand, understood what was going on so that he could track them down and arrest them. So Saul was very much aware of... He had all the knowledge that he needed to become a Christian. But none of this had an impact. He was filled with zeal for what he perceived as God's honour. So Saul had the same sort of experience as the Ethiopian and eunuch, but he wasn't transformed. In fact, Saul must have looked at this rough carpenter from Nazareth who died messily on a Roman cross and thought, this guy cannot be the Messiah of my Almighty One, of the Almighty uh, Yahweh, of the El Shaddai, the El Elyon there. So <clears throat> Paul suffered from what author David Robson calls the intelligence trap. Basically, too much intelligence allows a person to become overconfident. That's a nice word for proud, by the way, uh, in their thinking. And they refuse to entertain possibilities that don't fit into their elaborate and intelligent mental framework. And because their mental framework is so elaborate and intelligent, they think that there couldn't possibly be anything that 
doesn't fit into it. So if something doesn't fit into it, it must be a load of rubbish. So Paul, like most other intelligent people, lacked intellectual humility. This is a very common problem. I'm sure you know some intelligent people who who have this problem. I have this problem. Um, And it's something that, that you have to work on. See, I'm not humble at all. I just implied that I was intelligent, so... There you go. Um, humility, humility is what prevents us from doing stupid things, not intelligence. Neither intelligence nor experience can rescue us from prideful error. Towards the end of his life, Paul looked back and said to his spiritual son Timothy in First Timothy, chapter twelve, uh, chapter one, verses twelve to fourteen. He said, "I thank Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord." who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. So what was it then that made the difference for Paul in this historic set of events? It wasn't more information, right? It wasn't more experience. It was a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, you could be picky and say, well, that is actually more information and another experience. But the point is that this particular type of information and experience was personal and relational. It wasn't just anything. Paul didn't just see more power being exercised. He didn't just hear more scriptural evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. It's clear that he already knew that because as soon as he gets converted, he goes out and starts arguing for why Jesus is the Messiah. So effectively that people say, well, we can't defeat him, so we'll have to kill him. So he must have had pretty good arguments, certainly annoying ones. Paul spoke to Jesus face to face. It was that personal encounter that broke through his pride and allowed him to reconfigure everything that he already knew into the right formation and to submit then wholeheartedly to the Spirit. Now it's my belief that this is not, that it's not only the Apostle Paul whose heart and life were transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus. I believe that we all are transformed through encountering Christ. Our encounters don't have to be as as concrete and dramatic as Paul's. Paul, remember, needed that as a mark of authenticity to ground his mission as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he refers to this in his contentious letter to the Corinthians. uh, When he's talking about Jesus, he says, Then Jesus was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him 
And this is Paul's claim to apostleship, seeing Jesus in the flesh. But this is not something that we require. We don't, we're not commissioned as apostles. Just as the Ethiopian treasurer didn't require this. Rather, we require an encounter with Christ that transforms us. Paul explains this sort of thing to the church at Colossae. He says, don't lie to each other. He's just been saying all these things that you shouldn't do, all these bad things. And he finishes with, don't lie to each other for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator. And that's know as in a personal relationship, know, not a know about your creator. It's know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Notice the thing that unifies all of us, all followers of Jesus. It's the indwelling presence of Jesus himself. It's not the laying on of hands that transforms us, though that may form a part of our experience as it did for all three of these guys. Nor does water baptism change us, even though Luke records that all three of these new converts responded immediately to conversion by getting baptised. Of course, we must have an intellectual framework that grounds our encounter with Christ and we see that both the Ethiopian and Saul had a solid grounding in the scriptures while Simon only had the experience of miracles and and that made all the difference in the endurance of their respective faiths. So to have enduring faith, we need some way to understand this encounter that we have. And to live it out. But nonetheless, the key to salvation is simple. It is a genuine encounter with the person of Jesus. It's shifting from being a person who rules their own lives to being a person who is ruled by the indwelling person of Jesus. So we go from ruling ourselves to being ruled by Christ. Now there are many ways we can encounter Jesus. Some people in Islamic countries encounter Jesus in dreams. I think Tim might be doing that right now. (laughs) Just joking, Tim. (laughs) Some, Some encounter Jesus in their friends or family. Many encounter Jesus in a crisis, sometimes mediated through friends or family, sometimes in a spiritual experience. Some, like C.S. Lewis, encounter Jesus in the cut and thrust of argumentation. And some encounter Jesus in literature or art, like this. And some even, believe it or not, some even encounter Jesus in the church. Does happen. And don't think, don't think that this is just a once-off event either. For our salvation, we need to encounter Jesus, but it's not, that's not the end of it. 
It's not like we see Jesus once and it's like, okay, see you when I die and go to heaven. We actually grow in our relationship with Jesus over time. He dwells in us. He lives in us. When I was three years old, I remember experiencing Jesus' presence walking with me and my parents on the way home from church. It wasn't a conversion experience. It was just the presence of Jesus. And as a three-year-old, there's, there's not a great deal you can do with that knowledge. You can't you know, rush off and tell you, I don't know, you like, I didn't go to any childcare, so I don't know, what do you do with that? But it did, I'll tell you what I did with it. It grounded my identity in a way that actually helped me flourish. When you know that you're loved unconditionally by the creator of the world and he walks home with you from Sunday school, you tend not to be too anxious or worried about things. It really gives you a, uh, a sense of perspective that's very secure and, um, and, and chases away anxiety, which is something I think that a lot of modern kids could do with. But while, while this child's faith was sufficient for a child whose life was largely managed by my parents... It became less effectual as I grew up and began to have to take control of all aspects of my life. So by the time I graduated from uni, I was struggling to submit myself fully to the Spirit. I knew how to trust God when my parents were worrying about everything, but when I had to worry about it, it was a bit harder. It took another encounter in which all that I desired, all that I desired was denied to me And I had to choose to let Jesus reign over my entire life or take the reins for myself. And in that, I met Jesus more fully in the humility of kneeling on the floor of my lonely apartment in Tokyo, so it was pretty lonely. And I was transformed in a new way which grounded my adult faith. Jesus wants to dwell in all of us, in in every one of us, for us to know him as he truly is, as the Lord. Don't overthink this. We're not the initiators in this. God is. I'm sure you know what verse this picture is illustrating. We just need to accept his constant call. If you have yet to encounter the living Jesus, or if you're struggling to allow him deeper into your life, please just stop resisting him. Stop on the road like Paul did and and look up. If you need help, find someone here who's like Philip. There's plenty of Philip-like people here. And they'll help draw aside that curtain. Life with Jesus is true life. And it's just that step away. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we know that you are always present, just, just waiting for us to turn to you. Help us to put aside our pride, like Saul had to, and to reconfigure our thoughts and lives to live under your lordship. We know you love us and we want to love you. In your name. Amen.